by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. That is Jesus Christ uh, who says, do not count their sin against them for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. We serve here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Great to have you along today. Uh, Vicar Bader will be joining us in uh, just a few moments, God willing. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the fifth Sunday in Lent. Judica, Judica, and that comes from the first line in our introit, Judge me or vindicate me. Oh, God. And uh, in that intro that I like to uh, tease and mock and, and whatever, um, Pastor Moline, one of, the, one of the things that is recorded for you in that introit is the Lord does not hold our sins against us. The Lord does not count our sins against us. This is, uh, this is kind of a scary thing as we, uh, we look at Psalm 43, which is uh, uh, selected verses of Psalm 30. 43 for our intrade. This is kind of a scary thing when we are saying, judge me, judge me, God. Uh, We have to have the confidence when we ask God to judge us that he will judge us fairly, he will judge us equitably, and that we will, uh, on the basis of that uh, judgment, not come out on the short end of the stick. Yeah, it is a little bit frightening, and you know, Psalm forty-three goes right along with Psalm forty-two, which is the as the deer. Pants. Yeah, I think they're right next to each other. If, they, I, they, if well, I remember they, that, they have the same refrain in them, which is, um, "Oh my soul, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me?" Uh, both of them, and so it's almost like maybe it was one psalm and they split it in half or something, you know. But um, yeah, the only thing we can plead when we stand before God and He points out all of our sins that we've committed in our life, and uh, the list is long and uh, and distinguished, maybe you should say, uh, of our sin. The only thing we can plead is Jesus. We can't say not guilty. We can't say. Well, you know, it happened, but this is why. The only plea case we have is to say, I belong to Christ. And it's on that basis then that God judges us, and it's on that basis then that we have eternal life and hope. And, uh, and so we have to keep that in mind as we uh, have this discussion about God judging us uh, and then also pleading our case. The dog ate my homework. The alarm clock didn't go off. Uh, Traffic was real heavy. The devil made me do it. None of those excuses fly. Uh, Vicar has joined us. And so, uh, Vicar, would you be so kind as to read 
the introit appointed for the fifth Sunday in Lent. It is Psalm 43, the antiphon, that part which is uh, repeated at the beginning of the end of the introit, is verses 1 and then the first half of verse 2. And then the bulk of the introit is Psalm 43, verses 3 through 5. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right, we have a uh, kind of a sobering psalm here, a sobering uh, introit for this day. We've already talked about that word vindicate and how much courage it takes to ask God to judge us, uh, vindicate. Uh, The second line there is defend my cause against an unholy people. Well, there's a couple things I want to talk about there, but the first one is defend my cause. Recently in church, we had the, uh, the gospel reading from Luke 11, where Satan, the slanderer, the accuser, is um, being cast out. The demons are being cast out. And then Jesus warns us that uh, if uh, a demon is cast out, uh, be careful that uh, it doesn't stay empty. Otherwise, Satan's going to come back sevenfold. The name Satan is accuser or slanderer. So if we're going to play out this courtroom drama here, Satan is the attorney, the prosecutor that is just accusing us and slandering us and hammering us right and left. Defend my cause. Who's the defense attorney, Pastor? Well, that's uh, Jesus, actually, that's the defense attorney. And we actually, this goes back to our creed. And when we say that uh, Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, uh, that's the position of influence there where uh, we stand before God and Jesus leans over and whispers into God's ear, uh, he's innocent because I died for him. He's innocent because my blood covers him. Uh, it's not that way before. Uh, in uh, the book of Job, we have this idea that Satan's the one doing that, saying, well, Job is only innocent because uh, you haven't done this to him. Job is only innocent because you haven't done that to him. And God does those things. Um, we see right before Christ goes to the cross, in fact, that uh, Satan is kicked out of heaven. Uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And uh, then Christ dies on the cross, ascends into heaven, and now he sits there pleading for us, uh, vindicating us, judging us, however you want to uh, translate that first word. In the Hebrew, it's shafat, uh, which is that judgment word. Jesus now uh, is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words, declaring us to be innocent by his blood. Okay, so who's bringing these charges? Um, It says here, defend my cause against an ungodly people from a deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Uh, 
Vicar, who are all these ungodly people, these unjust and deceitful men? Who, who is this that is bringing these charges against us? Basically, anyone who is not of the kingdom of God, anyone who's not a Christian, people that are uh, looking at us and saying, how is it that you can say you're a Christian when we see you sin daily? And they're throwing these accusations into our face, and we have to admit that we do do that. We do sin daily, and yet we have Jesus standing at the right hand of God to plead for us on our behalf, saying, He is forgiven. It's amazing how people outside the church uh, very, very quickly discover, point out, and shout from the rooftops every little speck of hypocrisy in a Christian. A Christian who claims to be a good person and wants to be a moral, noble, uh, upright citizen and family man or woman, you know, that kind of a thing. And we know our sin. Our sin is always before us. But those outside the faith, those outside the church, they spot that hypocrisy a mile away. And so these charges and these accusations uh, are coming, and they are well-grounded. They are. In fact, I would say all of us who are in the Christian church are in some way, shape, or form hypocrites. And uh, guess what? Uh, For those who are not a part of the church, there's room for more hypocrites here in the pew. Uh, And so you can come and join the rest of us and receive forgiveness from Christ as he intercedes for us. Come on down. We got room for one more. Okay. Now, in this psalm, Psalm 43, where we begin by asking God to judge us, to vindicate us, uh, to adjudicate us, defending our cause, and then it goes on, it says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them, your light and your truth, bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. What's going on here with this light and truth, uh, abstract abstract topics there, this uh, light and truth that are leading me and directing me and bringing me to this holy hill, to God's dwelling? What what, what is this, some mythical journey? No, I wouldn't say it's a mythical journey. Um, First off, we have to put this in the context of, uh, of how God... Uh, is worshipped uh, throughout the uh, Old Testament times, and then I suppose also by extension today. And this holy hill uh, is the temple. It's the high point of uh, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, which is where the temple was built, the high point in Jerusalem. It was uh, uh, seen uh, as above always, everywhere you're going up to get to the temple. Even if you're traveling down a hill, you're going up to the temple. And so that's the holy hill. Uh, the light and truth then uh, that proceed from that place are uh, the wisdom of God, the word of God, and uh, the reality of who God is. Uh, It shines a light in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. It shines light upon our sins so that it cannot be denied or hidden. Um, And yet it also then uh, purifies us and takes away our guilt and our shame. 
This finds its ultimate fulfillment then in the person and work of Jesus, who is, uh, in a sense, the new temple uh, where God dwells amongst his people. Uh, He is the light of the world. And uh, so we come before him and he shines his light upon our sin and then declares us to be not guilty for the sake of his blood. And uh, and therefore, uh, we rejoice in God and we have no reason to be sad or, or anything like that because Christ takes away our sin. I'm glad you uh, took that extra step there in that segment and connected it to Christ. I was thinking about how Jesus claims in John, uh, John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we've got a path or a way here, and the light and the truth are guiding us. So we got the light, we got the truth, we got the way, we got all of these <clears throat> I am statements coming uh, together and flowing from these words from uh, this amazing psalm, Psalm 43. What is it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, get you, Vicar, here. What is it that makes God's dwelling, this hill, what is it that makes it holy? It is that God's presence is there, uh, very real in the fact that his word is there. And where God's word is proclaimed in its truth and purity, God is there working through that word to create and sustain faith in us. Uh, and it's pretty cool, too, to look at the way these uh, verbs are going for this passage. Uh, these light and truth are not something that we possess in and of ourselves, and because we have them, therefore, we guide ourselves. But the light and the truth are what lead us, who bring us to God, to his holy dwelling. It is, uh, it is amazing that whatever God touches, uh, God changes. And... God touches with his holy presence unholy people like us through Jesus Christ, his son, and makes the unholy holy. We're going to come back to our intro, a portion of Psalm 43, when we come back from our break. This is Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Albert Bader. We're looking at the readings for the fifth Sunday in Lent. Uh, Pastor Moline uh, gave us and uh, was uh, uh, gracious in getting that uh, marvelous, marvelous uh, intro there. Tell us a little bit about what we heard as we came back from the break. Yeah, what you heard was a... um 
music, musical version of our intro for today from Psalm 43. It uh, is uh, arranged by a man named Felix Mendelssohn, uh, who actually is famous uh, as being a church musician and putting a lot of uh, uh, introits and psalms to music. Uh, he's also the one who rescued all of Bach's works and brought them back to light. Uh, people had kind of forgotten about Johann Sebastian Bach. Felix Mendelssohn brought him back to the forefront and uh, helped people to realize what a genius Bach was. And so it's kind of a neat thing then to hear uh, an introit uh, as it was arranged chorally to be sung in a church service. How much? How many years do we have between Mendelssohn and Bach? Quite a few, actually. Uh, Mendelssohn is much more modern. Um, I, I'd have to look up exactly when he lives, but I, I think uh, Mendelssohn at least is in the 1800s uh, is alive. Let me see here. He's born... Um, so I can tell you when he died. He died in 1847. Um, it looks like he'd born in 1809. And so Bach would have been about 100 years before Mendelssohn. Uh, and, and the music that Bach wrote just kind of was sitting in an attic or something somewhere. Nobody listened to it. Nobody realized the genius of Bach. Handel uh, was more famous uh, and remembered, and Mendelssohn rescued him in a way. Okay, so in a sense, uh, Mendelssohn uh, was instrumental in bringing Bach back. Yeah, and uh, how's that? How's that for a softball intro? There's the softball intro. Yeah, and so uh, it's thanks to men like Mendelssohn that we're able to have our our new show here on KNNA, bringing Bach back, uh, which will begin um, on Easter uh, as we begin to look at Bach's cantatas one by one, uh, studying the theology of them, listening to the music of them, and and uh, bringing him back into our Lutheran fold. I think a lot of people know about Bach, and they, they think of maybe a couple of his famous works, and they think of him as a classical musician, but they don't make the complete jump to realize that he's a Lutheran church musician, and that much of our uh, Lutheran liturgy and musical acumen uh, depends on the work that he did uh, 300 years ago. Okay, we're looking forward to that uh, new program here on uh, KNNALP, and uh, we don't know the times yet or the dates and all that, so just listen for the the spots, and uh, we're going to get all that put together here soon. But it will start on Easter Sunday this year. Let's get back to our intro, Psalm 43, the uh, antiphon, the beginning and the end, Psalm 43, 1 to the first half of verse 2, the bulk of the introit, Psalm 43, 3 to 5. We were talking about how God sends out his light and his truth and then leads the people of God to the temple of God and how this is all uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to go to that next line. Then, then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. So what, Pastor? Uh, this, This light and this truth has gone off. They have led me or maybe even wooed me to God's house or to come to God's house. Then I go to the altar of God. Uh, Doesn't that seem normal or logical? What's happening here? 
Well, it does seem normal and logical, but we we maybe don't understand what an altar is. Uh, in the Old Testament times, the altar was the place where a sacrifice would be made. It would be a number of stones that were uncut. They would be piled into a particular shape. Uh, Jewish altars had horns on each corner, uh, meaning rocks sticking up in each corner, of square in shape. The Canaanite ones would have been a big round circle. Uh, that's what an altar was. And, and an altar would be a place where you uh, stacked up a big pile of wood, uh, you slaughtered an animal, and you put the animal arranged carefully on the wood, and you burned it. And by burning that altar, uh, that animal on the altar, and offering that to God, you are receiving forgiveness of all of your sins. That takes place then. The altar would have been right out the front door of the temple, uh, and the uh, altar would have been on one side of the door, and on the other side of the door there would have been a bunch of posts where animals were brought in and slaughtered so they could be laid on the altar. It's the place you go to get forgiveness of sins. For us Christians, uh, we don't go to an altar like that anymore. Rather, for us, the altar is uh, Christ crucified, the cross. That's where the ultimate sacrifice for sins is made, where blood is shed, and if you will, uh, that uh, Christ suffered hell, the fires of hell, in our place uh, so that we might have complete and total forgiveness of sins. And then we also see in heaven there is a continuation of this idea uh, of an altar of God. When Isaiah goes to heaven, there is an altar and a burning coal from that altar is touched to his lips to forgive him all of his sin. And uh, the reason that that coal can forgive his sins is because the blood of the sacrifice that's been on the altar has run down to the coal and uh, the blood then is touching his lips. And uh, that then also leads us to our understanding of the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion where the body and blood of Jesus are placed right to our lips to give us forgiveness of sins. So when we talk about going to the altar, all these ideas are being brought to the forefront. And uh, that was well said. But uh, now the thought comes into my head. So is that what we do on Sunday morning, Vicar? When we go to church and the pastor or the priest is up at the altar, are we re-sacrificing Jesus every week on the altar? Are we re-sacrificing him so we can get some of this blood? What's, uh, what's happening there? No, the book of Hebrews teaches us that Christ was sacrificed once for all. He was only sacrificed the one time, his obedient sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And there is no more need to have any more sacrifices since that time. However, when we come up to the Lord's Supper, we are not re-sacrificing Christ, but we are receiving the goods that Christ has won for us, namely the forgiveness of our sins by him giving us his very body and blood that was sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. Pastor, that sounds like something a Lutheran just made up, and and you said you said it very, very well. Vicar, I don't don't get me wrong here, but it sounds like something a, a Lutheran made up uh, to combat Roman Catholic theology. How can you, from the Greek language, tell us or teach us with regard to the person and work of Jesus? How what Jesus did on that Good Friday two thousand years ago has continuing effect now. And we don't need to re-sacrifice Jesus or do a reenactment of Good Friday each divine service so that we get some blessing or benefit. How does the Greek language work in that way? Well, um, the Greek language is 
uh, much more clear in terms of its tenses and the way that a particular tense affects time. So, for example, in the Greek language, there's something called the perfect tense, and that has to do with a past act that has present abiding results. Okay, say that again. A past act that has present and abiding results. Get that in your head, folks. Right. Something that happened in the past but is still effectual and beneficial right here and right now. So, for example, um, I married my wife. I have been married to my wife. It happened uh, June 10th, a number of years ago, uh, and I am still presently married to my wife. Or maybe you could think of this. Um, I was just listening to a different podcast the other day, and they were talking about a, uh, a president who was there when they started to build the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument was built uh, began in the 1840s and finished after the Civil War, and it still is built in Washington, D.C. and standing there uh, and will be hopefully for some time, I suppose. It's a past action that has present abiding results, and, and that's the way that uh, the Greek language speaks oftentimes, and, and that's the way we speak about the sacrifice of Christ. It happened in the past, and yet it reverberates and affects our reality now and is even delivered to us now through the Word and through the sacraments, uh, bringing that forgiveness earned uh, on Good Friday to us here, 8,000 miles from Jerusalem and uh, almost 2,000 years later. And if you can't understand that, then there's zero chance that you can understand how the historical act of your baptism can have ongoing benefits today. How the institution of Christ's Supper on Monday, Thursday, 2,000 years ago can have ongoing blessings and benefits today. This is an extremely important part uh, of our theology and of the faith that I really don't think that we emphasize enough. So, Vicar, take this with you wherever the good Lord sends you. And, Pastor, you hold me to account, and let's let's try to do uh, an increasingly better job of emphasizing this truth. And I think another aspect of the Greek language that is important for us to understand is also what we call the passive voice. So not only do we have the perfect tense, past action with present abiding results, we also have a passive voice, which means the one that's doing the verbs is not related to me at all. It's, it's being done to me or for me rather than me doing it for myself uh, or to myself. And so uh, we have... We've been doing this in the Romans Bible study. We've had the perfect tense that's also the passive voice, meaning it's a past action done by someone else uh, that has present abiding results for me. Well said. Well said. Toward the end of our introit, why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me? What are some of the reasons why a child of God who has been brought to the altar of God, who has seen all these things, who has been judged rightly, what are some of the reasons why our soul would be cast down? Because of our sin and the results of our sin uh, leading to death and the grave, uh, all these things weigh heavily upon us and tear us down and make us feel the guilt and the shame that uh, uh, this world is full of. And so uh, the question is, though, why should our soul be cast down? 
when we are in the presence of God, when he forgives our sins, when he uh, vindicates us and defends our cause against ungodly people, when he delivers his light and truth from the altar, delivering forgiveness of sins, life and salvation to us, why are we cast down? There's no reason that we need to be, for Christ has taken care of all those things. The uh, last word that I want to focus on here, hope. Hope in God. When our souls are cast down, when the cares and worries of life are uh, assailing us, when the people and the enemies are accusing us of sin, rightly so, it's very, very easy to lose hope. Our God is a God of hope. And because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we can claim that hope now and again. Pastor? And perhaps as we go to break here, we can uh, pick up uh, Mendelssohn's uh, choral setting of this particular introit with these words, Hope in the Lord, uh, O my soul, I will again praise him, my God and my salvation. Okay, well, we'll do our best to do that. Uh, we're going to head to break, and we hope and pray that that's what you're going to be hearing next. Don't change that dial. <gasps> Pastor Moline. Sorry about that little technical glitch there. Uh, Pastor Poppy, along with me is Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We uh, are privileged to uh, serve here at Good Shepherd in Lincoln, and uh, we we have Pastor Moline, who um, uh, is obviously bringing a little class and dignity to this program. We have some, uh, some amazing music with regard to uh, Bach and today Mendelssohn with our, for our intros and uh, outtakes and things like that. So uh, if you like that music, you are really, really, really going to love Pastor Moline's new program, Bringing Bach Back, starting and debuting on Easter Sunday this year. We're looking at the readings for the fifth Sunday in Lent. Vicar, gospel reading is John eight forty six to 59. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. 
There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Wow, what a, what a wonderful uh, gospel reading. John eight forty six to 59, gospel reading for the fifth Sunday in Lent. There's so many places to pick up here, and I think I want to start with this whole demon thing. We've had uh, three of our five Sundays now in Lent where we got some connection to demons or demon possessions and devil stuff. Pastor, uh what is this uh, seeming obsession with the things of the underworld and demonic activity? Well, um, it's one of those things that the real uh, the real things are terrifying uh, beyond our comprehension, and maybe it's one of those places that the door is better kept closed uh, rather than uh, dabbling in any of those things. It is real. Satan is real. Uh, he desires for you to go to hell with him, and he'll do whatever is possible to get that to be for you, uh, tell you lies of all sorts of manner uh, and about all sorts of things. I think in this particular case, this gospel lesson, uh, we have to take into account what happened right before it to understand how this whole discussion about uh, demons came about, uh, because it is in the verses just before this, which would be the extended text starting at verse 42, um, Jesus tells them that uh, the, the Jews, that they are of their father, the devil, uh, and their will is to do their father, the devil's desires. And then they, he goes on and says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And and just to be clear, the thing that uh, made these people that Jesus is talking to of the devil is the fact that they don't believe in him. They don't have faith in him. And so there's this big contrast being set up between those who did have faith in Jesus and those who didn't. Uh, and he uses Abraham as an example and says, Abraham had faith that I was coming and looked forward to it, uh, and therefore uh, he has salvation because he has faith in me. You guys, I'm standing right in front of you, and you don't get it, and therefore you belong to Satan and death and the devil. And uh, so that contrast is being played out here in this particular gospel lesson. So once again, we have a matter of identity 
and what side are you on? Whose team are you rooting for? Are you a child of God or are you a child of Satan? And specifically with regard to Jesus, is Jesus the one, the Christ, the Messiah who has come from God, or is he a fake? Is he a phony? And is he an imposter? At the end of this, when we get into John 9, we see the power and authority that Jesus has as he performs one of the greatest miracles of all time, only to be topped in John 11 by an even greater miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, even only to be topped by an even greater miracle in John 20, his own resurrection from the dead. So we see it building and building and building. And for your Lenten uh, piety for your Lenten devotion, uh, I would just encourage you to read the Gospel of John. I can't think of a better place for you to be. And that is emphasized by Jesus' words, um, whoever is of God hears the words of God. That's in uh, John eight forty seven, And he is making the case then that he is of God. He is the one who is promised. Now, this is judge or judica or vindication Sunday. And one of the reasons why this gospel text is uh, chosen for this particular Sunday is it says in verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Vicar, who's the judge? We're talking about God the Father here. God the Father, the one who seeks out his son's glory, right? Correct. And how is that glory manifested? The glory is manifested in the least expected way when Jesus is hanging dead on the cross for us, when he is lifted up or exalted on the cross in our stead, paying for our sins. So Jesus then uh, compares or brings up the topic of Abraham. And says that uh, Abraham died. Oh, Abraham uh, looked forward to uh, this particular day. Where, where, what verse is 56. that? Fifty-six. Thank you. Uh, in verse fifty-six, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and Jesus is responding to their mocking question: Are you greater? than our father Abraham who died. So um, they're asking that as a rhetorical question. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Meaning, well, of course you're not. How does Jesus answer? He says, yes, I am. In fact, um, he even goes so far as to say, I'm the one who went back and talked with Abraham, uh, visited with him uh, as one of the uh, three men, uh, visited with him uh, when he was trying to sacrifice his own son Isaac, as we'll hear about in the gospel lesson. Uh, Abraham believed in me, Jesus is saying, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, and uh, uh, Abraham looked forward to seeing my day and was glad with it, and, and you don't get it at all because you don't believe the word of God. Uh, and I think that's important for us to see is that even in the Old Testament, all the scriptures are about Jesus. And so if they really believed the word, uh, if they really believed the scriptures, if they believed the stories of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, they would totally get who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, and believe in him. But they don't believe the word, and therefore they miss who Jesus is. And what really got this whole uh, 
discussion, debate, argument going was Jesus' words in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And uh, this uh, this just uh, set the... Uh, uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, uh, because, well, Abraham died, and uh, so well, you can't possibly know what you are talking about. Vicar, in the context of where we are here in John, and Jesus' words, if you keep my word, you will never taste death, where we're going in John and where Jesus is going specifically, uh, what does Jesus mean, if you keep my word, you will never taste death? Aren't all people going to die? We hear from Romans that the wages of sin is death. We will certainly taste death if we die in this world before Christ comes again. However, we will not taste eternal death. We will not taste eternal separation from God in the fires of hell. But even though our body is laid to rest here in this ground, our soul will continue living in heaven until that great and glorious day when Jesus comes again for his second coming, when he will raise our bodies back to life and reunite that with our souls to live with him forever in righteousness and purity. Well said. Uh, Pastor, one of, the, one of the main themes in John is this, uh, this theme of knowing. Knowing, this uh, gnosis and... Uh, Pastor Kuhlman would talk about when this word knowing is there, the intimate nature of this word. we got a whole flock of them here, starting in verse 55. But you have not known him, meaning our Father in heaven. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. What is all this knowing talk in this particular context? Well, it, it, it has that idea of faith. You don't have faith in him. And I think this is another place to talk about the uh, perfect tense, if we're going to do that. Okay. In verse 55, Jesus says to them, you have not known them in the perfect tense, meaning you didn't know them before and in the past action, you didn't know him. And even now, you still don't know him. Uh, you don't have faith, is what he's saying. You don't believe his word. You're not really... Um, Worshipping the true God is essentially what he's saying. You're worshipping a fake God, a God of Satan's making, a God of falsehood, a God of lies, because you don't understand the content of what the faith is, which is Jesus Christ uh, coming to take away the sins of the world, to crush the serpent's head, uh, to bless the world through one of Abraham's seed, uh, to be the king that rules forever, descended from David's throne. All these pictures of the Old Testament finding their fulfillment in Jesus, and they don't get it. And therefore, they don't believe. That, that uh, faith that God gives us is an intimate knowledge that teaches us that God's word is true, God is for us, not against us, and the gift of Jesus means life and life everlasting. Uh, what, a, uh, what a great message in John chapter 8 on this Judica Sunday. When we come back from the break, we're going to look at our Old Testament reading, Genesis 22, 1 to 14, but we're going to listen one more time to the uh, Mendelssohn and the Introit, Psalm 43.
You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We're listening to uh, Mendelssohn. Uh, I botched the uh, ending on the previous segment, so if you picked up that that was not Mendelssohn on the introit, uh, you get five gold stars and you get to move to the head of the class. We're not going to spend any time on what it was and how I goofed that up, but uh, we got it back for our intro, and hopefully by the grace of God we'll have uh, have it on our send us out as well today too. We pray God's blessings as we're looking at the readings on the fifth Sunday in Lent. In the first two segments, we looked at our introit for this uh, Judica fifth Sunday in Lent Sunday, and uh, in our segment three, we looked at the gospel reading from John eight, where Jesus says that uh, God the Father is the judge, and um, that's good for us because God the Father judges us on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our Old Testament reading, and maybe at some proclaiming the one in the future, we'll spend all four segments just talking about this reading. There's so much here. We can only give it a uh, cursory glance, but it is too good to skip. Genesis 22, some people have said that this is the greatest gospel account in the entire Old Testament, including Isaiah 52 and 53. Luther preached on this Old Testament account more than any other section of Scripture. What's the big deal? Vicar, go ahead and read it, please. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I don't want to spend a lot of time on talking about tradition, but the tradition that the spot where this near sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham is of archaeological and historical significance. Where Where is this spot, and how does this tie in, Pastor? Yeah, uh, Mount Moriah that this supposedly takes place is, uh, today it's the uh, the mountain where the temple uh, was stood at the time of Jesus and the time of Solomon. Uh, today it's where the Dome of the Rock is. They uh, Some believe that it's even the very rock that's there uh, under the Dome of the Rock that this happened on. For sure, it is in that general area. The area of Mount Moriah is what it says in the uh, the Scripture lesson. And so it could be anywhere within uh, a couple hundred yards of Jerusalem uh, that this is taking place. This, of course, being much before there was a city of Jerusalem there. There was uh, Salem, which would be a few houses that would be you know, uh, a quarter of a mile, a half a mile to the south of the actual peak of Mount Moriah. Uh, and so it's that area which is what uh, makes that particular spot of land uh, such a holy place for so many faiths and such a contentious piece of real estate as well. And uh, when you've made your uh, trip to the Holy Land, is this an area where you've been able to go, or is it too dangerous to go, or how does that work? Well, you can go uh, to uh, Moriah. Um, you can go to the, the mountain, you can go up on the, uh, the, there's a big platform. The truth be told, this entire mountain now is underneath uh, a giant platform built by Herod the Great. There's a few places where the actual bedrock sticks up. One of those is in the uh, Dome of the Rock, and no, you cannot go in there unless you are uh, Muslim, but you can go up on the giant platform that's built around it. You can go up and touch the wall uh, that's built that holds the uh, the fill in and you can go to the south end there is uh the mountain itself you can see and on the north end as well um but uh it's all covered up now with archaeological ruins and the buildings of herod the great okay all right very good so we have we have all kinds of things going here and we need to narrow our focus down a little bit first of all god calls to abraham and uh, says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. So, what is it, Vicar, that has led up to this point? Why is it such a big deal that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? What's the significance of Abraham and Isaac and uh, this particular boy? Well, Abraham is living a life of faith. God had promised to Abraham when he gave him the name Abraham 
that you will be the father of many nations, just as his name implies. And uh, Abraham, as we know from the biblical account, had trouble procreating. His wife, Sarah, was barren, and he tried to fast forward God's plan of uh, giving him a son by having his uh, maidservant. Well, that wasn't what God wanted. He told him that through Sarah you would have a son. So Isaac is this son of promise that was given to Abraham. Isaac is the one who will continue to have children, who will also have children, and therefore Abraham will be the father of many nations through him. And uh, now God is testing him to see, do you fear, love, and trust in me, or do you fear, love, and trust in your son more than me to provide for you? And uh, that's kind of what it's leading up to now. Pastor, uh there is nothing in the Christian faith, there is nothing in the 66 books of sacred scripture where a Christian is encouraged toward child sacrifice. This seems to be the antithesis of what the Christian faith is about. And yet here, God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and offer him up as a burnt offering on the place where I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to give both of you a chance to talk here. But, Pastor, first of all, um, what possibly could Abraham have been thinking when child sacrifice, human sacrifice, is not a part of the faith? Well, yeah. First off, Abraham is uh, before God has clarified all these things. We do have one uh, op. One time where uh, Jephthah's daughter is sacrificed, and that's out of his foolish pride. And, and, yeah, and that's uh, condemned. And it's condemned. That's condemned. Um, that's in the book of Judges. We do have the uh, sacrifice of children burned and given to Molech, which uh, stands for Satan. Uh, but nowhere in the Jewish religion is uh, human sacrifice or child sacrifice uh, put forward as a good thing. And so we have this weird text that does have that, uh, the only solution we can find to make it make sense is that this is all foretelling us about God's one and only Son, whom he loves, who will be the sacrifice to take away sin. And and this way, Isaac kind of uh, embodies that whole thing, even to the point, you know, we talked, Vicar mentioned Sarah was barren uh, and had to wait a long, long time till finally she had a son uh, that would carry the promise of a Savior. And uh, in the same way, it was uh, for a long, long time that the church had to wait until Christ was finally born uh, to uh, to be that Savior. And so everything that we're about to hear about in this particular passage has its fulfillment in the personal work of Jesus. And God is trying uh, desperately to teach us to look for Jesus and understand who he is. Okay, Vicar? Well, I was just going to say, we use God's Word to uh, interpret God's Word in passages that might not be... Uh as well known to us. So God is asking Abraham here to sacrifice his son. We know that it is not God's purpose and intent that the blood of Isaac be shed. And in the book of Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, God says this, uh, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Uh, God certainly is very staunch against human sacrifice and child sacrifice in particular. 
Yes, and yet here it's very clear that he does command Abraham to do this. The uh, the book of Hebrews teaches us that uh, Abraham believed God, and he believed the promise, and he believed that God would uh, make him a great nation, uh, many descendants through Isaac, and the book of Hebrews teaches us that he, uh uh, Abraham reasoned that uh, if God actually did have him go through with this, that God would raise him from the dead. Uh, that's how sure and certain he was of the promise. Uh, Pastor, let's talk a little bit about the faith of Isaac. The faith of Isaac here. How is Isaac a type of Christ in this narrative in Genesis 22? There's so many things, it's hard to even get uh, all of them out. Uh, so they go, Isaac goes with his father, uh, where his father tells him to, in obedience to his father. They travel for three days, teaching us about uh, the three days that Christ is in the tomb. They see the place from afar, and Isaac carries the wood upon his shoulders, the same way that Christ carries the wood of the cross to the place of the crucifixion. Uh, Isaac uh, is a young, strapping man, uh, you know, um, how old exactly we don't know but he he's in good shape like the vicar is abraham is an old 100 plus year old man and isaac allows himself to be bound and placed upon the wood even it's it's very likely that young man isaac hopped up on the wood himself according to the word of his father uh, and is willing to be that sacrifice and so all these things uh, and more show us who Christ is uh, and how Isaac is uh, typifying the reality of who Jesus will be. One of the uh, one of the key words here is uh, how God will provide. Isaac says, uh, ah, the fire and the knife are here. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And uh, Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And then at the very end, after Isaac has been spared, and the ram has its head caught in the thicket, and uh, the ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Final thoughts on this Lord's provision. We got less than a minute left, Vicar. Yeah, the Lord certainly does provide. Would have the blood of Isaac done anything to justify us sinful people? No, because Isaac also was a sinner. Uh, we needed the blood of a perfect, spotless lamb of God to take away our sin. And as John the Baptist says, that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God has provided this once-for-all sacrifice for our sin by providing his own beloved son in our stead. Thanks be to God. Well said, Vicar. Uh, this is Proclaiming the One, fifth Sunday in Lent. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to get up Sunday morning, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, read the paper, and go to church. <laughs>